More recently, I've been able to collaborate and to participate in conversations through BC, with BC, and with Northeastern and BU and William James Mm -hmm. on on funds that have been appropriated to these schools to serve or to help bring more BIPOC into mental health positions. Mm -hmm. Taxer video here from Boston Speaks Up, and that is the voice of Yvonne Castaneda, today's guest. She's a licensed mental health professional and part-time faculty member at Boston College School of Social Work. Uh, Yvonne has a really interesting uh, story to share. Uh, Her parents are uh, both immigrants. Her dad's from Cuba. Her mom is from Mexico. And she spent part of her childhood in L.A. and Miami. She found herself in Boston in the 2010s, working in in the fitness industry before finding her true calling as a as sort of a social worker and, and licensed mental health professional. She's um, she's doing a lot of interesting work now, um, predominantly with first generation families um, that are looking to honor their cultural identity while thriving in the modern world and right now in, in sort of a modern and quickly modernizing Boston. Um, so uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation for folks. I think it's it's a it's a bit of a deviation from just your typical entrepreneur. Um, I don't know if I've talked to anyone who's been as vulnerable on an episode as Yvonne was willing to be on this one. Um, and I don't know if I've talked to someone who's maybe pivoted as many times as her. Um, so her sort of entrepreneurial drive, um, her passion and and her ability to sort of overcome challenges, it's, it's really commendable. Um, it's probably only outweighed by just her willingness and ability to talk openly about the, the challenges and vulnerabilities that, that she's sort of, um, faced and, and faces in life. Um, so I hope, I hope folks enjoy this. And, you know, Yvonne actually came through by just reaching out to me and she listens to Boston Speaks Up and, and felt that her story would, would add to the, to the community. And, and, and I agreed and, and I'm so happy she did and so happy to share this with you all. Um, and would just encourage everyone to please continue to reach out with thoughts, feedback, and, and guest recommendations as time goes on. Thank you and, and have a wonderful day. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Yvonne Castaneda. She's a mental health professional and a part-time faculty member at Boston College School of Social Work. Hi, Yvonne. Thanks for being here with me today. Oh, thank you. It's a complete pleasure to be here. Really appreciate it. We just had a nice sort of pre-chat. Um, and I feel like we're already very present and locked in. I want to you know, thank you for, for taking the time. And just for listeners, could you give a general overview of, of what you're up to today and, and sort of, you know, what, 
what keeps you busy in a normal sort of day week? <laughs> um, a lot of things keep me busy. I think my dog is one of them. Um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, as you said, I'm a mental health professional. I work, I currently work in private practice and that's relatively new. Um, I was working in community health for about five years and uh, decided to go off on my own. And I work primarily with first gen, um, with first gen Americans, whether, um, you know, from families from overseas, from uh, Central and South America. So I'm working basically with first gen or Latinos in general. And then, you know, part time, I teach a few classes at Boston College in the fall and in the spring. And that most definitely keeps me very, very busy. Um, and then I, you know, as a social worker, when you're as a trained social worker, you've always got your hands in like all kinds of stuff. Um, and so I collaborate with, you know, any number of little projects that BC might um, invite me to be a part of. Um, so I, I really, it's a very full life. It's very busy, but it's a good busy. You know, I, I talk to my colleagues all the time. It's like, it's a good stress. You feel like you just always got your hand in something. Nice. That's cool. So, so talk a bit about the practice you're involved in now. Is, is it specifically working with first gen Americans or is that your specialty that you bring to the practice? Um, I would say honestly, like that my quote, my specialty is more trauma informed. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a very particular type of therapy called EMDR. Um, and it helps individuals who have perhaps suffered a great deal of trauma, whether in their childhood or adolescence or recently. And, you know, talk therapy is fantastic, but talk therapy, I think there's limitations to where you can go with trauma because it's so closely related to like the physical body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I offer that as a particular, say, specialty. Um, mm-hmm. The clients that I work with and the clients that I currently have on my caseload are primarily of Latino descent who are maybe first generation, currently in college, first first person in their family to go to college. They're here in school um, or working with, you know, Latinos who are actually immigrants and mm-hmm. live there. Cool. So yeah. how, how does your form of therapy work? Describe it a bit. It, on, it depends on the person, but I will, I'll try to give you like a, I guess a reader's digest version. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, it, I don't really know what a person is going to need on day one, you know, because we reveal ourselves over time. And so, and I always share that with clients when I first start with them, like I have, I don't know right this second, what is best for you. First of all, only, you know, what is best for you. And you're going to somehow show that to me and we're going to work together to kind of figure it out. Um, so a big piece of what I work on, and I usually assess where they are on day one in terms of just awareness. You know, how aware are you of whether it's your emotions or your thoughts or even like what's going on in your physical body? Are you aware that these things are connected? And if not, what can we do to, to develop some more awareness? It's just, wow, you know, I had no idea. Um, and then from there, you know, Honestly, Josh, Josh, Zach, it's like, um, I always share this with clients. It's a relationship. We are developing a relationship, you and I, and I don't approach it as I know more than you and I know better than you, because I think that's super disrespectful to a client. So I approach it as we're getting to know each other 
and we're developing a relationship and we actually use this relationship to understand in what ways we can, we can help you in terms of like your mental health along the way, you know, they're developing self-awareness and maybe they're starting to understand themselves better. But in that process, there is conversation about just coping skills in the meantime. Right. And I say in the meantime, Zach, because I'm not the therapist that teaches people simply how to cope with anxiety or cope with depression or cope with stress. I think it's important to have tools, but at the same time, I'm very direct with clients on day one. And that if you just want someone to teach you how to cope, I'm not the best person. I, I work more towards, let's work towards some really meaningful, profound change for you so that you don't have to cope. You don't have to feel, you don't feel like you have to have certain things in order to get through your day. Because I think, wow, that's just not, that's not living your life. That's coping with it. You know, so, you know, you're some, in some consultations, some clients will be like, well, no, I'm actually looking for somebody to help me cope. I'm not ready to do like maybe some deep kind of work. And I respect that a hundred percent. And then there are people like, I really, that's what I want. I want to understand myself better. Mm-hmm. So that I could show up better in all of these situations. So I hope yeah. that answers your questions. There's yeah. no like, you know, a direct yeah. No, I love it. That's helpful. And it's it's really, I mean, no one size fits all. And and that's mm-hmm. sounds like a I mean, it, it, there's a certain approach you take, but also it seems like the type of work that you're best suited for and that is for folks that are looking to lean in to do the deep, sort of the deep sort of transformative work um, yeah. as a follow-up. I'm, I'm sort of curious about accessibility to therapy. We we're talking about this, like before we kind of went live and sort of, mm-hmm. it, it seems like a privilege. Like mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, mental health seems like an afterthought sometimes. And then at times, if, if maybe even someone's interested in it, it seems like something that, you know, folks maybe with a bit more, money and, and, and it tends to, or or it seems to be something that like white people do, um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. white people from means, um, Mm -hmm. gut check me on that. And then also talk to me about like your familiarity with better accessibility or awareness of therapy and mental health sort of, uh, opportunity opportunities to um, address one's mental health with, with professional assistance. Like what's happening in Boston right now? Like, how are you, how are people finding you and sort of just, you know, how important is this topic? Oh gosh. I'll try to answer each individual like point. I will preface this by saying that I think mental health is extremely important. And, you know, my colleagues and I have this conversation all the time. I, I, I venture to say sometimes that it's more important than physical um, because there is a mind inside that body that really dominates a lot. Um, and so in terms of accessibility, certainly if you are in a private practice setting and you are charging $250 an hour, then I don't know that it's illogical to assume that what the, the, the client that you are going to bring to your practice is going to be a person who has means and has a great deal of wealth. And, and I'm not judging that or criticizing that because I think suffering is relative. 
Um, in my particular case, I decided to go into private practice. I take health insurance. Um, and I also offer a sliding scale for individuals who maybe don't have insurance, but desperately need mental health support and cannot afford to pay $150 or $200 an hour. And so I offer a sliding scale. And Zach, when I say I offer a sliding scale, I will go from $15 a session, to be for perfectly honest with you. I, I will charge $15. Does that work for you, right? Because I've set myself up in such a way that I can afford and I can do that. And, and it was very important for me to do that. And believe me when I say that going into private practice was a conflict and a half for me. After having worked in community health and working with, like you said, underestimated, underrepresented, underserved, it was I was overwhelmed with guilt for leaving. But I also looked at it like, is there a way for me to like have a private practice, but still remain in many ways connected to community and helping people who really need it and really want it. Um, so that's how I operate just on a, on a person in my own practice. This is how I approach my own particular business. Um, I think, I think what's really hard is COVID prior to COVID. Um, that we had like people had mental health challenges, maybe, right? But I think that before COVID, we, and I say we because I was included, um, we'd all gone really, really good at distracting ourselves. And we had lots of distractions. We had work, we had, you know, social engagements, we had like the busyness. Great places like, to go, people yeah, to see. Going, 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 and all that drama. And then COVID just kind of removed everybody's coping mechanisms. And it exposed what has already what was already there. And I, I mean, I think in some cases, COVID did provoke mental health illness for a lot of people. But I think in many ways, it just exposed it. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, we really do have a mental health crisis in this country. And the problem is, we don't have enough clinicians to serve. We didn't have enough clinicians before. Now it's next level, you know. And so, a lot of people who maybe may not have wanted to access mental health before are now accessing mental or wanting to work with a therapist and, and running up against, I'm sorry, you know, I'm on a wait list. I'm on a wait list. I have a wait list. I have a wait list. That's like eight months long, you know? And so it's, it's extremely difficult. Now, never mind underserved, underrepresented communities. I certainly in the setting that I worked in, in community health, I worked within a, a primary medical care facility in which we offered behavioral health integration. And I have lots of conflicting thoughts on behavioral health integration because that was, you know, somebody who comes to the, to a medical center for a doctor's appointment, say like somebody from El Salvador who has only been here for three years and comes to get medical care and, and shares with the doctor that they're feeling a certain kind of way. And maybe the doctor realizes, wow, this person is, is suffering from depression rather than tell that person, listen, I I need you to go see a therapist which in our community and our culture is like a big no, no, like that is shameful. No way says, you know, we have somebody here in the health center that can see you, you know, would you be interested in maybe connecting with, with a consejera, with a counselor, you know? And so it's, it, it offers more access, but at the same time in some behavioral health integration models, it's a, it's a once a month for 30 minutes kind of appointment. And, and on a personal level, that was very difficult for me. Because I, I, what I wondered is these 
these individuals that we're serving are many of them are suffering from complex PTSD. Yeah. And and I'm and I'm seeing them once a month for 30 minutes. It left a lot to be desired. Yeah. It left a lot, yeah. a lot, a lot to be more to be done. Absolutely. It 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 worried me a great deal. And, and sorry, just to jump in there, like I was gonna ask you about your community work. Um, and I'm glad you, you touched on it a bit. And it sounds like you were being exposed to the type of clientele that you were suited to help, but maybe in a within a structure that inhibited you from really getting deep into the type of deep work that you want to do. So I think your transition to private practice makes a lot, even more sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, Can you double click on, you you say our community, our heritage, let's, um, let's start talking about that. Like, let's talk about your, let's talk about your heritage and the, and your community and, and the, and what, and, and sort of the multifaceted nature of that, like, let's go back in, in, in time a bit, like where you were born, where your parents are from. Sure. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for asking that question. Um, my mom is Mexican and my dad was Cuban and they met in California. They both came to the United States in their twenties. You know, my father left Cuba when Castro rose to power in 1959. I think my father left shortly thereafter, 1961 or 1962. And he found, you know, political asylum in the United States. And then my mother you know, my mother came over like many um, Mexican immigrants, but at the time, I mean, she was able to get a tourist visa. She came to the United States for six months. She met my dad, they got married and the rest is history. Um, Both of my parents came from like extremely poor um, backgrounds. And it's, it's hard for me to even, sometimes when I think about it, it's hard for me to even have those thoughts because it devastates me in a, in a way that I, sometimes I'm not prepared for when I think about what my mom suffered. Um, and so certainly like growing up, you know, we, I have these two cultures, Mexican and Cuban. And I think what, what is important for, for listeners to know is that although there are some commonalities within the many different Latino cultures that exist in this country and, and beyond, obviously that there are, there are absolutely some fundamental differences in the way that they operate and see themselves in the world. Um, my mother's Mexican culture and her being a woman was certainly for me growing up, what she showed me, what she displayed to me was that a woman must always be subservient, Mm. like to the man, defer to the man, the man runs the show. He's the man of the house. He's in charge. And she was very passive, you know, and kind of like submissive. And not that my father was a tyrant, you know, my Mm -hmm. father was calm. My father was so laid back. He should have been horizontal. Like he's so, so chill. He's chill. <laughs> yeah, so chill, which is not super common, like maybe for, for Cubans. I don't know. I can't, okay. I can't generalize. But my father, you know, Cuban culture, uh, my father raised us definitely with hard work. Hard, like work ethic was everything to my dad and certainly drilled it into me that education was essential. Like there was no, I remember when I was like 13 years old or 14 and my father said to me, I'll never tell you what to do with your life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, but the only thing I'm going to ask you for one thing, can you do one thing for me? And I said, sure. And he said, please don't get married until you have a college degree and a career and you can support yourself and be financially independent. Because if you get married and you don't have that and it doesn't work out, what are you going to do? So, 
I mean, he wired me for hard work and be independent. Don't rely, don't lean. Which honestly, Zach, was very confusing because my mother gave me a completely different message. Yeah, you're getting two different messages. You're, yeah. you're, it, well, there's a lot of wisdom from your father. And we cover this in the pre-podcast questionnaire. Uh, he's, he, he didn't go to school past third grade, but he read books about philosophy. And so, so he, he read a lot. He seemed, dare I say, and maybe it sounds odd to use the word woke, but it sounds like your dad was ahead of his time. sounds like he was pretty woke. Like he was, he was, he was modern, um, in his mindset for his young daughter to be be sure that you always could have a level of independence with or without a man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And at the same time, you know, I recognize that both my mother and my father, their, I think their hopes for me were in many, kind of like limited in that, like, at the very, what they wanted was for us, myself and my brother, to have a job that was stable and secure. For my father, like, for me to be like, say, uh, a, a somebody who works for the government was like super successful because I have like benefits and health insurance and I'm secure for the future. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was really just what they wanted. So, you know, we, we were raised and, and I, I think this may be true for many Latino cultures, certainly with, with um, families that come here and are raising kids here and that there's this, like, you got to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a dentist, one of those white collar professions and and if you do that then then you'll be really really good Very good yeah. but, but there's no awareness of what's in between landscaper and doctor yeah. right it's like you're either food service landscaper um you know low paying fast food factory jobs or you do that and there's no middle and also you know in my family the dry, the the push was always or the focus was always money you know, are you, are you going to make any money doing that? Are you, how are you going to make money? And so, you know, like I shared with you in the, in the, the pre podcast interview, I wasn't taught to embrace the idea that I could pursue something for the sake of fulfillment and happiness. That was unheard of. <laughs> I could, if it meant I would be a doctor, but if it meant that I would do some, like, if, you know, if I wanted to just be a bartender and that just made me happy and fulfilled me, absolutely not. Mm. You know, like that's not okay. Right. So these were sort of the early seeds of twenties doubts that would probably mm-hmm. come in to your mind as you were maybe trying to be something, but also in it or, or yearning for something else. Um, And I kind of want to get into that, into your twenties and into some of the, your own, to the extent that you want to share some of the mental challenges that mental health challenges that you had talk a bit about your childhood and sort of where you were raised because your, your mom's um, Mexican, your dad's Cuban first seven years of your life were in Los Angeles And then you move and and you kind of integrate or or you go to get around more your father's family in Cuba, but uh, sorry, in, in Miami, which is a lot lot like Cuba. Um, But you were actually, it sounds like you were around in a predominantly sort of like white environment where in LA you were around more of a sort of Mexican American environment. So what was that? That's, that's quite a pendulum 
swing? Yeah. Like what, what was that like? Well, it, it, and it gets even more interesting because I think when we moved, obviously we lived in Los Angeles and San Gabriel Valley, um, which at the time was predominantly Mexican. And we had my mom's Mexican family and my mom comes from a family of 18 and many of her brothers and sisters were in Southern California and they had kids and it was just like a lot of family, you know? And then we moved to Miami and this was 1978. 1978 Miami was not what it is today. Um, and it wasn't as heavily populated with Cubans or Latinos for that matter. So the neighborhood that we moved to, I remember, I want to say we were the first Latino family. There was one other Latino family, another Cuban family. But we really grew up in a neighborhood and went to schools that were kind of white, you know, not super, super sonic, super white, I would say, but like influenced by white. And I think that adding to that, we, were exposed and what what we watched on TV was really from a white lens, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not knocking these 80 movies because I love 80s movies, <laughs> but um, yeah, certainly all the movies that we watched and the TV shows, you know, Brady Bunch and the Facts of Life and Family Ties, like these were all like white families. Um, there was one show called Que Pasa USA, you know, and it was like a Cuban family that we loved, but I mean that was pretty much it. So um, I think. It was, it, as we got older and, you know, there was like the Mariel boat lift and more Cubans came over. And then as we got older, by the time I got to high school, I remember in high school, our school was predominantly white, but we had a great deal of Latinos, mostly Cubans. And, but it was so segregated. We literally had an American parking lot and a Cuban parking lot. And the, administ- and the administrators referred to it as that. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. yeah no, those yeah, are different yeah. times. <laughs> different times. Like, yeah, we're going to, you know, meet in the Cuban parking lot or meet in the American parking lot. It was crazy. Literally wow. just an uno- unofficial but accepted segregated parking lot. Yeah. But but what's funny is that we all got along. Like, yeah. I, I don't necessarily remember unless I was in the dark, but I don't remember there being a great deal of conflict among us that was based on ethnicity, you mm-hmm. know, like Cubans hung out with white people, white people with Cubans. Sometimes white people ended up talking like they were Cuban in English. It was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and so again, like as we got older, it was just more and more and more the influx of Latinos. And so I certainly felt in my twenties, actually even back it up, I had a lot of confusion about where I belonged in terms yeah. of culture. I couldn't, I felt like I wasn't Latina enough to be, say, fully Latina. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't white enough to be fully white. Just kind of like caught in the middle. Mm. And then, of course, not really knowing how to proceed with my life. Like, should I do this or should I do that? Am I supposed to go this way? You know, my American counterparts are doing this, but my family's telling me this. And so it just led to a lot of confusion and quite frankly, like existential angst, um, which then manifested as mental illness. Yeah. that. So thank you for, for sharing all that, that, that sort of existential angst is what I want like, let's talk about that some more. Cause it's sort of what you dealt with and, and you still sort of deal with, like it's part of you. It's what you help people with it's sort of like identity purgatory like am i 
am I, am I, you know, what, what part am I, am I Mexican? Am I Cuban? Am I American? And, and is it like, it, I'm all of these things. And, um, how did that like talk a bit about the sort of challenges that you face, like in your twenties. So your, you know, your dad's goal for you, um, was to go to college and be in a position to be, uh, independent and be able to stand on your own, regardless of having a man or not. Um, did you achieve that? And what were your twenties like? And, and, and sort of like also, you know, graduate us into sort of how you found yourself in Boston. Oh, okay. Um, again, I'll try to give you the reader's digest version. Um, I'm one of those people that will say very like point blank. If I had an opportunity to go back to my twenties, I would run from that opportunity so fast because twenties were so hard and so confusing. Um, I, I, I can't share so much about my twenties without backing it up just a little bit mm-hmm. to give context, but you yeah. know, gr- growing up again, the, the food piece in our culture was big, certainly in my family, my parents were poor growing up. And so for them, success and, and, and what they felt was great was them being able to provide mm-hmm. food, lots mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. We were never denied. If I wanted a donut at 1030 at night, my mom would bring me the donut and a glass of milk. Um, I, I will nourish my child. Because I, I can. Yeah. nourish my child. The fact that there is fat on our bodies yeah. means that we have made it. We are mm-hmm. okay. And I respect that. I understand that. But certainly as a kid, I grew up and I was overweight. Um, my Cuban family as I love them to pieces. Um, but also like my Cuban family and the culture for the most part is very direct, very, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about how you look. And I'm not even going to consider how it affects you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I got a lot of comments growing up, certainly in adolescence, you're too fat. You need to lose weight. You know, you're getting too big. No, one's going to love you. You're never going to find a husband that way. You have to lose weight. You got to fix your hair. And so. I guess, and I, and I say that because culturally the way that I, I think the message that I received subliminally, subliminally is your entire worth is wrapped up in your appearance and your achievements, what you achieve and how you look. And this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to determine your worth. This is where it is. And so for me, of course, that was very difficult. I ended up developing bulimia my senior year of high school, halfway through the year. Um, I developed bulimia and I would have bulimia and suffer through it for almost 20 years. And so that's kind of like, that that was just a a measure to get me that perfect American ideal, that perfect body, that really skinny. And this coupled with, I need to achieve, I need to achieve, you know, I need to go to college. I need to do something, you know, big. I have to get this job where I make money and all of it, you know, kind of manifested as a just crippling anxiety. And I say crippling because it was crippling. I'm sorry to hear that you dealt with that. And for so long, for like multiple decades, like if if you're willing to like, and for folks that maybe aren't familiar, like can you just describe like what, like what bulimia is and how much it is impacting just your daily life when you're in it? Sure. Bulimia is literally like a master and you are a slave to it that's how I can define it. Mm -hmm. It's not that much different, I guess, to what you would think about when you think about addiction. Um, I just felt incapable of getting through the day without it. So it was, you know, it's binging and purging, it's eating and then purging or taking laxatives 
to purge food from your system. Mm-hmm. And it started, honestly, Zach started once, twice a week to three times a day to five times a day to mm-hmm. like, I, 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 when I think about it, I don't even know how I'm sitting here because it was, it was really just so out of hand. Yeah. You know, unhealthy. So, yeah. Like, so you weren't able to have those new things in your body actually provide the nutrients they were intended to provide. Exactly. And like, you know, my parents, I told them and my parents couldn't, my mom especially couldn't wrap her head around it. Um, it for her having come from poverty and the, the joy of having food to hear her daughter say that she is putting this food in her body and then purging it was a lot for her to grasp. She just couldn't understand it. And I don't blame her because it doesn't sound logical. Right. I think they initially tried to help me. And I, I think at one point, my father, I do know this. He told my mom, we need to just let her be. And we need to trust that she's going to figure it out because if we try to fix it, it's just going to make it worse. And again, that's my dad's wisdom. We're going to have to let it go and pray that she mm-hmm. works it out and she figures it out. But we didn't have like access to like a psychologist or for as much as I told my father, Papi, I, I think, I think there's something wrong. I don't think I'm okay. I think I need help. It was as much as he loved me. It was like, Oh no, you don't need a psychologist. You're not crazy. Like, you know, you just need to rest and you need to, you know, take some time. Yeah. So that was like the backdrop of like me then going to college with this crazy eating disorder. And of course I added. Where'd you go to school? I went to FIU. I went to Miami-Dade Community yeah. College first. Yeah. And then I went to FIU. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved what I studied. I It gave me a lot of fire. I, I studied international relations and with no strategy, no agenda. I didn't know what quote I wanted to be. But I knew that I wanted to learn about the world and conflicts and where they came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I during college, obviously, I was trying to manage this eating disorder. And I also was working full time as a waitress and then as a bartender, which if you've ever worked in restaurants, it's like a cesspool of really bad habits. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, also great humbling experience. Love it. Yeah. I love it. I My wife bad. and I joke that our, our daughter will work in a restaurant someday. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did so much fun. I did. Yeah. You meet good people, it. salt of the earth people. Yeah. Totally. It was just fun. But yeah. I also, I smoked heavily, smoked cigarettes, yeah. I drank alcohol. I just yeah. developed it. They went from like sort of things that you did once in a while. to straight up lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Just being a lifestyle. And so that alcohol, cigarettes, binging and purging, like, honestly, when I think about it, those were just coping mechanisms. Because really what was going on is that I had a lot of anxiety about what the hell I was going to do with my life. Because post-college, you know, with a degree in international relations, I was proud. I put myself through school. I paid for it by working. And I also had no idea what that meant for my life. Um, Again, and this speaks to like what I think a lot of immigrant families, parents go through is they don't know how to, we don't know what exists. We don't know what there is again, between landscaper and doctor, like what's in the middle and is it okay? And so I certainly, my twenties, I, there was a great deal of drifting, you know, I, after college, I worked on cruise ships for about two years and I loved it. I got to travel, Mm -hmm. but again, it was very much so what am I doing? Were you flirting with the Peace Corps at one point or that was an interest? Yes. And then your some of your family, because 
I, I did at one point too in, in AmeriCorps. I tried to do Teach for America, which I got denied at the last stage. But um, that, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, but and and it sounds like your your family's like response to like international relations, Peace Corps was also like in your extended family was like, well, how what? are you going to make money with that? You know, like how's that going to be your yeah. solution for life? Totally. I mean, when I was in college, and I know that this is true for many students today. Yeah. When I was in college and studying international relations, I, I mean, I had fire for it. I I just loved learning about other cultures and other people and 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 conflicts and all of it. And my father was very proud, and we had some great conversations. And never did my father question or wonder like what I was going to do. I think he assumed that I would go into like a government job. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly extended family or people that I met in my job as a, as a bartender, they'd be like, Oh, you know, that's great. And, uh, so then what are you going to do? Yeah. So what are you going to do with that? Like, what are you going to do with that degree? And so there's this mm-hmm. emphasis that my degree yeah. had to lead to something. Yeah. And that, oh, that just more uh, pressure, more anxiety, so much pressure. Yeah. And I, I didn't have anybody to tell me that it was okay. Yeah. You don't have to do what you studied. Yeah. So you worked on a, so did you work on like a, you say a cruise ship for some years or what kind of ship did you work on? On cruise ships. I worked for Norwegian cruise lines and then I worked for a ship in Europe, um, Mm -hmm. part of like the princess brand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I did that for almost two years and, you know, it was like college part two at the time in my life. But, and um, that just really is more drinking. It was party. It was more drinking, more smoking, more binging and purging, more, more, more. And I know that coming off of cruise ships, I was terrified because I still didn't know what I was doing. And when I say I had existential angst, what I'm referring to is I just, from a very young age, felt deeply that I wanted a job or a career that was meaningful that had impact, that helped others, served others. And that's when I told you, like, I kind of flirted with Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Like something like that. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't have the background or the family to support me. And so I just had that. But I also had, in certainly later 20s, right, all of my peers or many of my peers in these jobs where they're making a lot of money. And this is like the dot-com boom. Yeah. So people are getting these crazy jobs, making a ton of money, you know, going on trips. And suddenly for me, it's like, Oh no, I'm behind. And what am I going to do? And so, you know, I was certainly conflicted. I have this drive. I want to help. I want to do this. And, but I kind of feel like I should be doing this. And so I took jobs for the purpose of money. I mm-hmm. took jobs for the purpose of quote climbing corporate ladder and never in my whole life have I ever been more miserable. I enjoyed some of the jobs, I'm not going to lie, and I excelled at them and I was miserable, like deeply just disconnected from a sense of purpose and that manifested as severe depression. Yeah. So I was battling anxiety and eating disorder, I drank heavily. And I also had depression and, oh, now I'm 28 and I'm stressed about maybe I should get married because Mm. everybody else is getting married. And is that what I'm supposed to do? It was awful. Mm. So you were still, and you were still thriving in whatever role you would be in. Like you were earning your 
earning your check and and satisfying the the requirements of of whatever job in front of you, but doing so with all these addictions and sort of the pain and depression that came with it. At what point, like when did fitness start to get into the picture for you? Because you talked about sort of how mental, like mental health is, you could, you could argue is most important for the body. Um, I certainly, my, it's interesting. It's all, all sort of intertwined for me. Like I would agree. And like at times in order to stoke or reset my, where I'm at mentally, like I need to exercise. Sure. I need to go on a run. I, I oh. ruptured my Achilles a oh. few months ago. I've been walking again for the last two weeks. Um, talk about a mental challenge. Uh, <laughs> just to be able to go out for a walk right now and to like move has been, it, um, you know, I am so grateful for movement and, and what it does for my mental health. Um, so talk a bit about, like, I'm curious where fitness came yeah. in and, yeah. and how it started to play a role. Good, at, you know, maybe good, bad and ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that because it wasn't all good. Yeah. Um, it started when I was actually, it was going back on, on cruise ships. So this is fairly early on and I had to have a tooth pulled and I had to have a tooth pulled because my teeth were rotting from binging and purging. Um, and I remember the dentist just looking at me saying, do you need help? And I think he knew. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling so much shame and like devastated that I was losing a tooth. And for some reason, like straight up the thought of losing my teeth, call it vanity, call it what you will save me. I was yeah. like, no, hell no. Like yeah. I can't lose my teeth. Yeah. And I just like realized I'm going to die. I don't want to die. Um, but I, you know, I recognize that I, there was something much deeper than just, I, I can't just stop binging and purging or stop smoking or stop drinking. I know there's something much deeper there. I don't know that I was ready for it, but what I did start thinking about out of nowhere, just started having visions of me as like an athlete, you know, cause I, I don't yeah. know if I read it or I thought it honestly, Zach, sometimes right. I ask, like, where did that come from? But I saw myself as a wildly unhealthy party, um, sick girl. And I didn't like that image of myself. And I wanted to see myself as an athlete, a healthy person who eats like normally. Mm-hmm. So I started running. I started running when I was on ships. And when I got off ships, I kept going and running. It kept me or helped me manage anxiety about the future. And it also, though, became then yet another thing that I did to keep my mental health in order. And so I had all of these tools and they were unhealthy. I had binging and purging. I had running. I still had drinking and, and I quit smoking for a little bit. I quit smoking for a little, like a couple of years, but I then started to rely heavily on running and running became a coping mechanism so much so that if I missed a run on a certain day, I would flip out. Mm. I felt like I couldn't get through the day without my run, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. to fast forward, running did help me heal or help me like move forward a little bit. And the binging and purging decreased. But then when I hit my late 20s and into my 30s, I got married and that's a whole other talk show. And the whole relationship piece of my life between 28 and 35 was what I would call like a massive train wreck. And it was in those seven years that I really lost myself in in everything. I lost myself in exercise. I got addicted to exercise. I got addicted you know, I was more heavily relying on alcohol. I drank every single night, a bottle of wine, sometimes two, 
I smoked again. I, yeah, all of it, right? It just kind of culminated. And at the same time, though, I had started working. I was working with a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. And I did love fitness. I loved it. I loved the idea that maybe it would save me or maybe that it was saving me and keeping me good. And so I, at like 35 years old, I remember I had a conversation with a friend of mine and he said, so what do you, what are you going to do now? You know, the dust had kind of settled from the relationship chaos. And, and I said, you know, what? I don't, I don't know. I was working as a translator for the federal government. I was working for the Department of Justice and it was very interesting work, but I still felt I'm not connected to something. I'm not connected to a sense of purpose. And he kind of planted the idea and I I couldn't believe it never had occurred to me that maybe I could work as a trainer. I didn't think I was Mm -hmm. fit enough. Mm -hmm. Plus I had all these like little habits. So for me, I felt like a total imposter. Like Mm -hmm. I can do this, but all the same, I still feel like an imposter, but I'm still going to do it because I want to do it so bad. So I became a trainer and I worked for Equinox Fitness. It was my first job. They literally hired my personality because I had no experience. And they were where were you living? South Beach. South Beach. So that's where you're working for the DOJ? Yeah. I was living in Miami. I mean, I lived in Orlando for about three years. Um, But for the most part, you were in Florida, like all the way up through 35. Yeah. 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 And so I... I was living in Miami. I got a job at Equinox. Um, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And I, my business just exploded. I think I had so much fire for fitness. What year was this? This was 2005. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So I was very busy, very fast. And I was promoted to be the PT manager, like the personal training manager, like a year and five months later. Mm-hmm. And that was like my first true leadership role. And I loved it. But again, you know, the background is I, you know, I'd had these like this lot of chaos going on with, with substance use and, and food and still not healthy. And I kind of crashed and burned at the same time that I was elevated um, to like a leadership role Mm -hmm. or I was promoted to a leadership role. And so I had this year. It was like this year of like what I call like a reckoning where I got out of a really unhealthy relationship and just really stopped and thought there's no way that these relationships that didn't work out are their fault, right? Like clearly there is something within me that I really need to work on. And so I took a year and just did what I think was unimaginable, which was I stopped coping. And I stopped drinking and I stopped smoking and I stopped relying on exercise and I stopped, I stopped, I stopped. And let me just tell you that that sucked. It was so hard. It was so hard. But I realized like, I just, I can't, there's something there for me. There's something here that I really need to learn. And so that year was what I call like a, I just, it was a shift, a complete shift in my perspective of myself and how I saw myself and recognizing that I had been driven so much by fear Mm -hmm. all of my life, afraid of what people thought of me, what people would think, afraid of, of not being accepted, afraid of not being good enough, afraid, afraid, afraid. And not only that, I realized I wasn't so much afraid of the future all those years. I was afraid that I wasn't going to be okay in it. And so I had to like, what is it? Why do I think I'm not going to be okay? 
when have I never not been okay? I'm here. I'm literally mm-hmm. sitting here. And I, you know, I can't say all this without saying that like God was there the whole time. I wasn't as close to God in my 20s, but certainly at that point, my relationship with God and my walk with God deepened. Mm. Now, and nobody told me to do that. I just knew that I needed to get back to, to my faith, to having faith and what it really meant to have faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that year was just like the, the shift. And so beyond that, you know, I stayed working for Equinox. I was with Equinox for five years. I then moved over to the sports club LA in Miami mm-hmm. as a fitness manager. And there, um, really loved working for the sports club. I met the CEO, Samira Million. She came down from, from Boston to meet me and meet the team. And I, it was like a love fest from mm-hmm. day one. And eight months or yeah, eight months after starting as a fitness manager at sports club, she um, offered me the opportunity to be the GM of the sports club LA in Boston. Cool. Which for me, it was like an epic jump. I remember asking her like, Smyra, are you sure you want me? Are you sure? I'm so insecure. I'm like, you woman, you are nuts. Like I don't have any kind of experience running a club that does $18 million. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, it was the huge epic club. And I, yeah. I, but she was hell bent. She was like, Nope, I want you. I know you can do it. And I am so grateful to her for that experience. But that brought me to Boston. Wow. Yeah. I mean, a GM role at a specific club, specific like in tech at a specific on a specific product or business unit. I mean, that's that's a CEO gig. So she's basically like that is oh that's God. a big jump. You're like me. You sure? Oh, um, really? Yeah. That's neat. So what year? What year did, did you move up to Boston? I got to Boston in 2011. Okay, yep. cool. All yeah. right. So a little over 10 years ago. And what was that like? Like, what was the, how was the transition to being a GM in Boston? And also what was it like? Culturally. Acclimating culturally <laughs> to Boston. It was terrifying. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. It was yeah. the first time, not the first time, but it was the first time in a while that I I was in an environment in which Latinos were not the majority. I think in Miami, but it's certainly by the time I left, like, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not different to speak Spanish. It's not different to be Cuban or Mexican or whatever. It's just, it's not different. Everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, the city is like really predominantly Latino. Mm -hmm. So when I came up here, I, I think that I truly, (laughs) I don't know that I realized it then, but man, code switching became a thing like i the way that i talked the way that i dressed started to change because i felt like my clothing was too colorful to miami to latina mm. and for whatever reason i lacked truly the full confidence in my ethnicity or in my culture to maintain that and mm. i adapted what i felt was i needed to adapt to fit my environment so you felt like you conformed a bit a hundred percent. Interesting. Um, Where were you living? What community? I first moved to the South end. Okay. I remember looking at apartments one day and I happened to look at apartments during gay pride. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the South end was, you know, full yeah. of flags. And I'm like, yeah. I want to live here. Like yeah. it's here, a jovial here. place. Yeah. Jovial. <laughs> yeah. It's tolerant. Yeah. Right. It's tolerant. Like it's yeah. That was very important to me. 
Had I known, honestly, I would have moved to East Boston. I would have yeah. moved to East Boston, one hundred percent. Hell yeah! Had I known yeah. that that's where all you know the community was, I would have lived there. But you know, I moved to the South End, and I just you know I worked in this role. I had interesting conversations with individuals who said things that kind of shocked me and confused me. You know, like I shared with you, I I had somebody ask me, you know, how I spoke English with no accent. Um, that was bizarre. Absurd. Um, bizarre is a nice way to put it. That's absurd. Bizarre. And lots of like microaggressions. And I think, you know, if you look at me, I'm what you would consider, I guess, white passing. Like people don't think I'm Latina. And I don't know what that means. And like, is it, why, why do you say that? Like, what does that mean? You certainly have a, a picture in your head of what Latinas should look like. And yeah. don't tell me that's a girl with hoops and red lipstick because that's really going to make me angry. Yeah. Like, you know, there's all, oh, you don't really look Mexican or you don't look Cuban. Or, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? But in any case, I, huh. you know, yeah, it was, it has been, I'm not going to yeah. lie. It has, yeah. been, it has been a journey, you know, and I, I went from sports club to health works. Okay. And at HealthWorks, and again, being in fitness, I just realized, and, and I mean no offense to anybody, um, but I, I think I had that moment where I realized I was never encouraged or taught to, to, to be successful or, or to consider working with the community itself. It's almost like, you know, honestly, Zach, you know the way that it felt, it kind of felt like we were encouraged or I was encouraged to like find my place in the white world as if there's limited spots or something like go mm. get yourself a spot in the white get world. Your spot before get they're all taken up and, and don't look back, you yeah. know, just keep going. And I, I don't know. I, I wondered all, all the time, you know, when I worked as a GM, the maintenance and the cleaning crew were all Colombian or Salvadoran and, mm-hmm. and hearing the struggles that they had and me feeling like almost like, in a way powerless or didn't know how to help them and just frustrated. And I just had that moment. I'm like, I know, like there's gotta be a way for me to use this leadership, these leadership skills that I have and this ability to like connect with people to help this community, to help my people, to help people like my parents. Right. So that's when I discovered um, the field of social work. And so I went back to school I left my crazy paying job and like, I'm, I want to do social work. Interesting. So I want to double click on two things. One going back to school. And I think you had mentioned, um, in the like pre-podcast that it was, uh, like a friend, like a friend that was like, Oh, like you can actually take this path and you can, you can yeah. be on that path pretty quickly. But then also you mentioned workers and you mentioned like, sometimes they were Colombian, et cetera. Your husband is Colombian, Colombian. right? And when, when did you meet him? I met him in 2012. So I Ooh, moved here in 2011 both. and I met him in 2012. Nice. Where'd you, yeah. where'd you meet him? Is there a nice romance story there? Oh my God. I met him in, in on like the dark ages of online dating. Nice. I met him on match.com. There you go. <laughs> we didn't have Tinder or Bumble or anything like that. So I met yeah. him on match. And there you I, go. Yeah. I, I prayed for him. Like yeah. I, I prayed to God. I asked very, I was very specific about what I wanted. That's awesome. And he That's was my third, he was my third date on Match.com, so I got very lucky. That's um, beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Talk about your um, conversation with your friend and your decision and path that you took yeah. to you know, which has helped bring you to where you are present day. Sure. I mean, I let's see. I was working at at HealthWorks as a GM, 
And I, I had become a life coach, like I'd shared with you, and also a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when I think about my career path, it's always been trying to get closer. It's me. It, it has always been me trying to understand better, like people better. As a trainer, I couldn't really understand or even work with what are, why, mm-hmm. right? Like, what are the behaviors That's... behind this? You know, it mm-hmm. used to frustrate me. Yeah. But well, you're working on, you're working with someone on things you can see physical. that physical muscles, but not what's inside. No. Yeah. And I had no access to that. It's not, yeah. it wasn't my scope of authority. Mm-hmm. So then I, you know, I became a yoga teacher and that like helped. And then I became a life coach. And although I recognize that life coaching is valuable for a lot of people, I was like, this is for really wealthy individuals. This is mm-hmm. discretionary income. And again, like what, by the time I had that conversation with that friend of mine, I was already feeling like, man, I've spent so much time serving really wealthy people because I worked in luxury fitness and I'm grateful, right. That I I was able to make money. I paid off a lot of debt. Like I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, it just felt disconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was on the back deck with a friend of mine and she was sharing with me like some stuff that was going on in her personal life. And that has always been natural for me. Like just love hearing people. I love to listen to them. I love trying to help them. I love all of it. Just natural. I can't not do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she said to me, she was like, you know, it's really sad that you didn't, you should have really been a therapist. And I was like, you know, I think about that all the time. And I, I wish I was younger because I just, I don't know that I want to go to school for eight years. She yeah. looked at me like, what do you mean eight years? And I said, well, you know, wouldn't I have to get a degree in like psychology and then maybe like a master's and like a doctorate or something. And it goes to show again, like the ignorance that I had or awareness of like what's possible. Um, And she said, no, silly. It's a two year master's in clinical social work or mental health counseling. You have a degree. And I was like, I do. And she's like, yeah, she explained the whole thing to me. And you know, Zach, I think it was two o'clock in the morning. I was on my computer and I had like, again, just like when I became a trainer, it was like, suddenly I had fire like fire is back like this it oh this is so it and so i looked on feeling it was the most incredible feeling and i found boston college the school of social work and they had the latino leadership initiative which is a particular concentration that prepares social workers to work with the latino population it was like oh my god what year was this this was 2000. I applied in 2015. Nice. Yeah, the end of 2015. And I, yeah. I made an appointment with the dean. With a dean. I'm like, I, you know, tell me about the program. And I just went nuts. I filled out the application. I submitted everything. I was so on fire for it. And, and guess what? You know, the questions that I got. Mm-hmm. But how are you going to make money? Like, you're going into social work? Like, you mm-hmm. know, social workers don't make any money. Um, you're going to work for like DCF and take kids out of their homes. Um, oh my God, you're going to have so much debt. Like everything was related to the financial piece. Yeah. It made me sad. I'm like, you, you don't see the way that I roll. You don't see how I show up and that's okay. You know, that's okay. But I didn't care. I'm like, I don't care if I walk away with a hundred thousand dollars in debt. I don't care. Like I'm doing it mm-hmm. and I will find a way and it will work out. And yeah, so, this will be purposeful. I will feel f- fulfilled. Yeah. Like, yeah. This I'm is, just going to do it. Yeah. I do it. So I <laughs> got my master's and 
you know, I think I shared this with you. I realized immediately talk about a super white environment, you know, in my classes, even in the Latino leadership classes, um, it's very white. Mm. And a, and a, yeah. Yeah. Very white. I can't, I can't downplay would, it. Would you and say again, you were, would you say like Latinos were the minority in oh, this? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And, um, it is, yeah. It's, it's yeah. something we talked a little bit about pre-podcast too. It's like even, you know, tech events that are promoting diversity and include, you know, equity and inclusion. And we'll have on folks from, you know, different backgrounds and maybe they'll have folks who are Latino or black, but then you go to this, these events and they're, you know, dominantly white. Um, But, but it's not that there aren't these really strong ethnic enclaves through Boston. Certainly you mentioned East Boston. I love East Boston. I go to East Boston. My friend, that's where I go, especially because I mean, I love the food. Um, cause there's a lot of good ethnic food. Like there's just a lot of good food and, and it's like more, you know, just salt earth folks. And you know, you have to spend like $40 on a salad. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I can eat like the most amazing, like Al Salvadorian food yeah. and Mexican food. And there's a difference and they understand that in East Boston. Um, so anyways, I done, <laughs> done with that the digression. Um, how many, how long was the program or is that program? It's, it's an interesting program to share with, with listeners. Like, and when you were out, like how, and what was sort of the first thing you did coming out of it? So it's a two-year program, a full-time. I went yeah. full-time because I'm like, I'm not messing around. Yeah. I'm like, see you later, out. HealthWorks. Like, this is what I'm doing. HealthWorks was awesome because yeah. they allowed me to transition out of a leadership role into a trainer. And so Perfect. Trainer so you could earn, uh-huh. so you could earn less. It work. It made yeah. it work. Yeah. yeah it's beautiful. So- I worked as a trainer and a yoga teacher and I taught at other clubs and, and so, yeah, it was a two-year program. Um, and then in the program, you have internships, you go out into the field, which I loved. I was at Excel Academy charter in my first year, Mm -hmm. which was working with middle school. Um, they're, they're mostly Latino. Nice. And I realized, but it was mostly the family that I, that I loved working with, you know, and I smile because I think about them and like, it fills me with joy. Um, Where's that school? In East Boston. This one was in, in East Boston. That's in Eastie? Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then I worked at, or I got an injury. My second year was at East Boston Neighborhood Health Center. Okay. And I was there for my last year of school. And then I stayed there. I got a job. And so I was at East Boston for three years, including my internship. And that, like, I'd say 95% <laughs> of the individuals that I work with are like are from Latino population, mm-hmm. mostly Salvadoran. Mm-hmm. Uh, Central American and Colombian. And I, wow. I just, when I think about it, it burned me the hell out. I'm not going to lie because we had that model, you know, we're seeing yeah. 30 minute visits. I was seeing like 45 people a week, which and is then not seeing them again for four weeks, sometimes not for four weeks or because it really, I think it worked for some patients, but I think that many just drop, wouldn't come back. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a really hard, but also very rewarding experience because I worked with so many people that came with so much trauma, just so much. I I, I don't know that I can even articulate just how intense it was to hear some of the stories that I heard. Um, and then from there, I went to um, New Health in Charlestown. 
Mm-hmm. And it is also community health and it's within the projects in mm-hmm. Charlestown. Mm-hmm. We serve that community. There was some Latino, but mostly working with, with actually white, mm-hmm. um, African-American, mm-hmm. Muslim, um, and a, a whole host of factors and ages 18 to 65 or 72 even, mm-hmm. you know, and again, a lot of trauma, a lot of addiction, um, a lot of violence, a lot of, just a lot of a lot. And mm. so my final year at new health, I also worked at, um, Charlestown high school. I was there mm. once a week working with the students of Charlestown high school. Mm. Um, and most of the students were Latino. Mm. Yeah. So, so yeah, I did a lot of community-based work. And like I said, I've been blessed with opportunities to collaborate with like the Charlestown coalition on a particular thing. And then working through BC and collaborating on projects to help serve the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously that's brought me to present day and somewhere mm-hmm. in there, um, I got an opportunity to be, to teach a class at BC. And that was like the year after I graduated. Um, they really wanted to, I think when I looked at the the professors that we had in the program, very few people of color, mm-hmm. actually, I, when I think back to my experience, I didn't have anybody. Mm-hmm. I had two people that were Spanish but no one like from Spain, mm-hmm. no people of color. And so for me, that was like, I really, I remember saying to my husband when I started the program, I want to be a professor. You're going to teach, like, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to add some diversity to this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Yeah. You no, know, but God is great. And yeah. I'm going to, I'm, it's going to happen. Yeah. I'm very grateful. That's amazing. Um, I have a fo- like a follow up question that like as we're because we're, I'd be remiss not to ask this like in kind of it's kind of a look ahead question too and then and then we'll get to our final like kind of fun question and and challenge for for listeners based on the work you just described the, your community work and you and you did it at the beginning of the episode but you just expanded on it really wonderfully like the work you're doing in East Boston the work you're doing in, in Charleston mm-hmm. ultimately why you moved away from it like less the programming or the, the structure, the process, whatever, you, however you want to describe it, um, it, it lacked, lacked some, it lacked seemingly many things, mm-hmm. but it lacked an ability for you to individually drive impact the type of impact that right now you're looking to drive individually much deeper in private practice. I'm yeah. curious mm-hmm. is the future. Mm-hmm for you, Yvonne, involving maybe some innovative, proactive approaches in the community space, in the community health space, is, and, and, and just in general, like what are some of the insights that you have and sort of aspirations you would have for some of the community health sort of programs and how to improve them in the years and decades ahead? Oh, Zach, we could spend another like <laughs> three hours talking about that, but I'll try to Take your time. Yeah. I yeah. See, first and foremost, when I said to you, like, as a social worker, and I wonder how many of my colleagues can relate to this, it's it's almost, it's literally impossible to just do one thing, right? Because you know, within the field of social work, there's so much. There's so much that needs to be done. You just got to choose on what level you want to impact, you know? And so... More recently, I've been able to collaborate and to participate in conversations through BC with BC and with Northeastern and BU and William James mm-hmm. on, on 
funds that have been appropriated to these schools to serve or to help bring more BIPOC into mental health positions. Mm -hmm. The way that BC is going about it, which I believe is so important, is to, to be able to offer organizations that serve the Latino population, to offer them licensed clinicians who are Latino, to offer supervision to whatever interns or new hires they have. Because a lot of times what happens is, and this is really important, what happens is an intern, say, or, or somebody who recently graduates from the program wants to work with the Latino population. They want to work for a particular organization, but the organization doesn't have the funds to pay for a licensed clinician to supervise them, which is necessary for licensing. And so that person might not take that job offer, go work somewhere else that maybe serves a different population, right? To get mm -hmm. this. So long story short, mm -hmm. I want and hope to continue collaborating and offering ideas on what can we do to bring in more people of color, Latinos yeah. into the field to serve these populations. I also feel that like my work at BC as a, as a professor and as a, a, a Latina is I try to bring awareness, right? Because I think sometimes the, if you're not careful, the program can come across as very like, focused on serving a particular population, like serving maybe more private clients. And it's everything I bring it back to. How does this affect people of color? How does this affect the Latino community, whether I'm teaching a class on policy or whether I'm teaching a class on clinical skills? It's how can I help all individuals, white or people of color or Latino, work better with everyone? Mm -hmm. How can we work better? What can we see what's in our blind spot? Um, and so. I, I, I think I answered your question. Yeah. That's, that's my yeah. goal. And I think, but I think what's lacking in community health or in organizations is again, it's a lack of culturally sensitive, culturally aware individuals yeah. you, who know how to serve a particular yeah. population that integration yeah. model. I recognize and I appreciate the intention behind it but it is not culturally appropriate. Yeah. There's lots of things that they're not taking into account. Yeah. You answered it really well. And like, you just hit on how I would have recapped what you said, which is essentially like there, it seems like there's been progress and I love the collaboration between BC, BU, Northeastern and in, in, in these different um, schools and, and organizations in, in Boston to help address those blind spots by actually putting, you know, people of color, uh, Latinos, like folks that look like the, the community they're going to help impact as the mental health professionals, as the social workers to actually work with those, with the community. So it seems like, um, that's part of this. That's a big part of the, the solution. And it will be really neat to check in with you over time to hear how that's, how that's going and and how that how that evolves. Yeah, and I and I would be remiss not to mention, hey, because that is yeah. a reality. Zach, mm -hmm. it's criminal what social workers, clinical social workers, get paid in our field. Certainly, working with community health, it's not. It's just not enough. Certainly, for students coming out with again crushing amount of debt. <laughs> 
mm-hmm. to then work with these communities and make very little money, barely able to survive themselves, and then work with such heavy, heavy, heavy stuff, heavy topics. And so I think that as a society, we need to really examine that. And I'm not yeah. just referring to social workers, I'm always referring to teachers. Teachers, yeah. You know, yeah. Like it's yeah. it's on, on what have we placed value? And yeah. if we continue to place value on material things, then teachers yeah. are not going to be paid. Social workers aren't going to be paid. I'm completely agree. And if the opportunity were such that I could have gone into teaching and make a, the type of money that I could make to catapult myself into a yeah. position in life where, where I felt like I needed to be. And I, I would say to this day, it's like where I'm, I'm happy. Like I would have gone into teaching and right. I found, I've, I've, I've gone the entrepreneurial route and then found myself back at Endicott college mentoring and nurturing young people. Cause it's what I always want to do and we'll do more and more over time, but it's so sad and unfortunate. The, um, the inequity in pay for teachers, for social workers. And that's, um, yeah, I think we'd both be remiss. I'd be remiss not to double click on what you just said. Like that is such a, it's an important, important point. Um, and something that I, you know, I hope changes, um, on a lighter note, um, a fun final question we like to do with our guests. Uh, could you share like a challenge that you have for listeners? And I think you you also have kind of like, you know, an example for from yourself. Sure. I have to do this. Otherwise I do have to say something before we end yeah. here. My yeah. publisher will kill me if I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, I did write a book about my journey and that's called pork belly tacos with a side of anxiety. And so I have to plug it or I will be yelled at. So in terms of like the challenge, right. For, for listeners, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of ties into what I said about like being taught that your self-worth is wrapped up in your appearance or your achievements. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when we do like a gratitude practice, um, sometimes a gratitude practice turns into, I'm grateful for my home. I'm grateful for my, you know, my family. I'm grateful for you know, my job, I'm grateful. And, and we're grateful for things that ha- that life has brought to us, right? Mm-hmm. That we have gotten, what, that mm-hmm. we have received. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we are taught or that, that we ever like, maybe we're grateful for what we offer the world. Mm-hmm. And, I, and whenever I tell a client to do this, I get this deer in headlights look like, oh my God, that's so hard. But I would encourage anyone listening to identify three things that are intangible. And that are things that regardless of your financial situation, where you live, who's in your life, these three things remain the same. They are unchangeable. So that could be, I am grateful for my sense of humor. I am grateful for my ability to be compassionate for others. And I'm, I'm grateful that I, you know, I'm honest, whatever it is. But these are like, this never changes about me. And, and I believe that I offer something to the world with these things and then say it every day. Yeah. Literally. Like a, yeah. Like a mantra. A mantra. Yeah. I but love it. Gratitude for who you are, not for mm-hmm. what you have. Yeah. That's great. Um, let, and actually I had a note down here. So let's, I want to talk about just thank you so much for this. And wanted to, to share with like folks, there's ways to kind of connect with you or learn more about you. One way is you have a book out pork belly tacos with a side of anxiety, which 
you started and stopped throughout your journey. And now as you've kind of come through and, and now everyone who got to listen to this episode got to kind of get this abridged version of like, Oh, this, this journey you were on, um, that book, uh, how, how long ago did you, did you publish it? And, and can folks, and can folks get it anywhere? Can they get it on Amazon? Do you want to just give a little details on that? Sure. Thank you. Um, it was published in February of this year. Um, by Santa Monica Press in California. Thank you, Santa Monica Press. Uh, it's available anywhere, honestly. Like some bookstores don't actually have it on the shelf, but if you want it, you can order it. It's definitely, it's super obviously available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, Trident, Porter Square. Um, yeah, it's available in bookstores. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Really neat. I love it. It's a catchy title too. Um, yeah, well, thank you. Um, and we'll have to share out some details on the book too when we're sharing out some of the posts um, when we finally show this this episode with the community, which I'm really grateful to, to be doing shortly. Uh, but Yvonne, thanks for being present with me today and, and spending extra time um, than we had even budgeted for. I really, really appreciate it and, and just really appreciate getting getting a chance to, to, to talk to you today. It is my pleasure. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for making space for me. Appreciate it. Well, you have a lovely rest of your day and uh, I'll be, I'll be in touch soon. Looking forward to an opportunity to actually meet uh, IRL one of these days. <laughs> All right. <laughs> God bless you. All right. Take Bye. care. Take Bye. care. Cheers, Boston. <laughs>